1: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We got a lot to do today, a lot to unpack. We're going to chat with Chad Finn of the Globe. There is some real controversy going on at WEI right now, so we'll get into all that with Chad Finn in just a little bit. We'll also chat with Pete Abraham of the Globe, preview of the Sox season, which is getting closer, and Pete was at the WBC, which I thought, as I mentioned the other day, was an outstanding event for Major League Baseball, so I want to get his take on that, and in particular, Pete's take on what Yoshida is going to provide for this Red Sox team. This could really help Pine Bloom in terms of his future with the organization, but where I want to start today is with the Patriots. And we keep seeing these reports that the Patriots are linked to Lamar Jackson, Rob Ninkovich, etc. I chatted about it briefly with Eric Edholm. And I'm starting to get to the point where I'm all in on going after Lamar Jackson. This should be a major, major, major priority for the Patriots for a couple of reasons. So We know that Belichick and company really like to run the football. Okay, so if you look at the Ravens since 2019, when Lamar Jackson really became the every game starter, if you will, of course, 18, he replaced Joe Flacco late in that season. But the Ravens during that time are number one in the NFL in rush EPA expected points added per play. So since 2019, this is a large sample size, right? We're talking about the 19 season, the 20 season, the 21 season, the 22 season. The Ravens are the most efficient running football team in the NFL. And if you look at Lamar Jackson during that stretch, 2022, 6.2 yards a carry second. 2021, 5.8 third. 2020, 6.3 first. 2019, 6.9 first. Okay. then you look at rushing yards per game. 2022, the Ravens as a team, 159.7 third, 2021, 145.8 third, 2020, 192.1, which was first in the NFL. The Patriots are a third at 146.6. They were at 192.1. 2019, the Ravens ran for 204.8 yards per game, which of course was first in the NFL. And so this, to me, is something the Patriots could dig into is you want to be a running football team. You don't have a ton of weapons right now. Well, you have the best running quarterback in the history of the NFL, Lamar Jackson, that could possibly be traded. You look at the Patriots. It's not like they have a dynamic passing attack. 2022, 208 yards per game, 20th in the NFL. Even 2021, when Mac had a decent rookie season, the Patriots averaged as a team, 226 passing yards per game, which was 14th in the NFL. Lamar Jackson can definitely give you those numbers, and you know what? He can make you the best running offense in the entire NFL. And does anybody really think, like based on these passing numbers that the Patriots had over the past two seasons, does anybody see them creeping into the top 10 this year in terms of passing yards per game where they can be a high potent offense, if you will? Mahomes is still in the NFL. Herbert in the Chargers. Allen in the Bills. Burrow in the Cincinnati Bengals. We saw what Minnesota can do with Kirk Cousins and Jefferson, and now that they have O'Connell there. Lawrence in year three after a really nice second year. The Jets are going to get Aaron Rodgers at some point. We saw what the Dolphins did with Tua when he was healthy with those weapons. Goff threw the ball like crazy for the Lions this past season. They were top eight in passing yards. Philadelphia with their weapons... They were ninth, and you may think they do it even more next year considering Jalen Hurts is coming off a really good season. Dallas just added Brandon Cooks to their offense, so they're going to be throwing the ball more. So the ceiling for the Patriots in terms of passing yards per game with how this team is currently constructed with Mac Jones is top 15. They're not getting into the top 10. They're not going to be an elite passing team. So what Lamar Jackson does is he elevates your running game. You are guaranteed to be a top five rushing offense in the NFL. Quite frankly, based on the numbers, you're guaranteed to be a top three rushing team in the NFL. And how about this? Look at what Lamar Jackson does for running backs. All these guys are so productive because all these teams are freaked out by Lamar. So if you go to 2019, you look at Gus Edwards was at 5.3 yards per carry. That was second amongst running backs. Okay. then you look at Mark Ingram, who was kind of old at that point. He was at 5.0, which was tied for sixth. How about 2020? The Ravens say, hey, we're going to double down. We're going to get an elite running back. So they draft J.K. Dobbins out of Ohio State. You know what he averaged in 2020 in terms of yards per attempt? 6.0. That ranked first amongst running backs. Edwards was at 5.0, which tied for seventh. So Edwards is like a decent running back, right? He's a good player, but he's second and seventh in those years in attempts because of Lamar. Dobbins took that offense to a totally different level because he's an elite talent and he's playing with Lamar. So he turns out to be the most efficient running back in the NFL that season. And Ingram, who was old, was tied for six in yards per carry in 2019. So you get the point. With an elite running back with Lamar, it takes your offense to a totally different level. Uh, what do the Patriots have? Oh, yeah, they have an elite running back. His name's Ramondre Stevenson. He averaged 5.0 yards per carry last year. That was ninth in the NFL when the defense knew it was coming, right? The defense knew he had to run because the Patriots couldn't throw the ball. The Patriots had a bad offensive line and they were 20th in run block rate via PFF last year. Okay, and they were 21st in football outsiders metric, DVOA, Baltimore, by the way, was second. So they weren't an efficient running offense, even though they had an elite running back. Stevenson last year, 3.81 yards after contact per attempt. That was the highest of any player in the NFL that had at least 100 carries. So he was doing the work. He made his numbers look good. It wasn't the offensive line. It was all him. So if you get Lamar Jackson to go along with Ramondre Stevenson and play into one of your strengths, which is Ramondre Stevenson is the best offensive player on this team right now, you are going to the playoffs if you get Lamar Jackson. And he gets to the playoffs most years, right? So what is more likely to you? The Patriots build a juggernaut of an offense with a running back like Ramondre Stevenson and Lamar Jackson in the fold or Mac Jones is back, right? Like, I just think you as a smart organization, or at least in the the past, you've been a smart organization. You owe it to yourself to find out, hey, is this the guy that can put us over the top? Because right now you're bottom 10 in weapons. You don't have a great line and you have a good defense. And some could argue maybe you'll have a great defense this season, but you don't have a good line. You don't have weapons. So there should be sense where you don't really have to be unbelievably loyal to Mac Jones, right? There shouldn't be this blind loyalty. There should be a loyalty to the Patriot brand. And what is a better avenue of getting back to being one of the elite teams of the NFL? Lamar makes the playoffs. He wins the MVP without elite receivers, right? Mac's going to need elite receivers and he's going to need elite coaching and all that different type of stuff. You just look at Lamar. He made the playoffs in 19. He went 14-2. and He won the MVP. He had one really good weapon in Mark Andrews, where he had 852 yards. Hollywood Brown was second at 584. In 2021, he made the playoffs. Brown had 769 yards. Andrews had 701 in 14 games. So he's never really played with elite weapons, and he certainly wouldn't be coming to the Patriots and doing that either. So the question we keep asking is, how do we fix Mac Jones? And that's why I keep saying Judy's the number one guy, right? Like go after Jerry Judy. And that's why we're all happy about the Bill O'Brien hire. But really, should this be what we're asking? How do we fix Mac Jones when there's a guy that Lamar Jackson that's out there that could completely elevate this organization? And part of the O'Brien thing to me is we're very happy he's here. But the big thing is he's not Matt Patricia, right? He isn't the worst offensive coordinator legitimately in the entire NFL, right? With actually zero experience. But Bill O'Brien If you think about him, yes, he is going to help. There's no doubt about that. He's going to help the offense. I've said that on multiple occasions. But look at the offensive minds in the NFL. He isn't Andy Reid. He's not Kyle Shanahan. He's not Sean McVay. He's not Sean Payton. All those guys are legitimate lifters of offense. Like Andy Reid, yes, he's great with Pat Mahomes. That's because he's on steroids having that type of quarterback. But he was good with everybody else. He was good with Donovan McNabb. He was really good with Alex Smith. Those guys elevate quarterbacks. Look what Kyle Shanahan does with limited quarterbacks, right? And if you even look through the list, like if you're comparing where Bill O'Brien sort of ranks in terms of the hierarchy of offensive play callers across the league, he isn't Brian Dayball. He isn't even Nick Sirianni. Kevin O'Connell was outstanding for Minnesota. He isn't Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson beat Bill Belichick at a Super Bowl with Nick Foles. He isn't even Josh McDaniels, is he? I mean, I guess you could argue that one. Arthur Smith, who elevated Ryan Tannehill to make Ryan Tannehill a Pro Bowl caliber quarterback before taking the head coaching job at Atlanta. So I just look at, and I like to Bill O'Brien hire. This isn't an indictment on Bill O'Brien. He's a huge upgrade for this team and a necessary thing. And I think he's a good offensive mind, but nobody would be like, oh yeah, Bill O'Brien is a top 10 offensive mind in the NFL. Nobody thinks he's that good. We think he's a good offensive play caller. We don't think he's Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, right? So he's an offensive coordinator or a play caller that quite frankly, isn't in the top 10. And he's here to fix a quarterback when you don't have the necessary weapons. Like, it's going to be better than it was a year ago, but you're in a spot right now where you're trying to fix everything surrounded by this limited quarterback. If you can fix it, it gets you back to an elite level. But what's the chances that you actually get this thing fixed, right? Like, the odds are not good of Mac everything working out here long term as an upper echelon quarterback, and you're constantly winning and you're constantly competing, right? With the talent that you have across the NFL in terms of the quarterback position right now. So to me, if you have an opportunity to abort that mission, like everything right now is geared around how do you get Mac better? But if you do have an opportunity to abort that mission and bring in a guy that you know can be an elite talent at the position, can completely elevate your run game, who has proven that he can play at an MVP level and get his team into the postseason, why wouldn't you do that? Especially considering the relationship sort of soured between Mac Jones and the organization last year. So if it was me and I was Bill Belichick and company, I would be doing everything I possibly can to figure out this Lamar Jackson situation. And if you really can get Lamar, I would do it. Because now, okay, your organization is now relevant again. And you also will be a unique team. You'll do something that most of the teams across the NFL are not doing. In this passing boom, the Patriots with their current roster and their current quarterback have no chance to compete in terms of the passing boom era in the NFL with what they have equipped with on offense. You're not going to be so good defensively that you can stay in all these games. So you have to get with the times. You can dominate time of possession, too, with Lamar Jackson. To me, every day that passes by, I keep thinking, are we doing the right thing trying to keep Mac Jones as the quarterback? Or should we be looking to move on and get an elite guy at the position? Because that's where the league is going right now. All right, a lot more to get into. We're going to chat with Pete Abraham of the Globe. We'll get into the Red Sox, some of the notes entering the season. Coming up next, though, we'll bring in Chad Finn. We'll get into the controversy right now going on at WEI. Welcome back into off the Pike, joining us now from the Globe. It is Chad Finn. He's also got a new book out, The Boston Globe Story of the Red Sox, More than a Century of Championships Challenges, and Characters. Chad, thanks for coming back on, man. How are you?
2: I'm good, man. Thanks for uh, uh putting the book out there right off the top. I, I respect that
1: yeah well we we'll get to that too, but I mean we we'll get to your book and congratulations on getting that project done. I know that's obviously not an easy thing to do is to write a book. I certainly could never do it, but. We had you on today because obviously there's a controversy at my former employer. And obviously, (laughs) I worked at EI and I know Chris Curtis. I mean, me and him have never had any issues. I got along with him personally. We did shows together and all that. But this is obviously now a major story. And it's not just a local story anymore. It's become a national story. So you cover the media, Chad. And because now this is all over the place, the clip is on social media if you haven't seen it. So they're talking about basically... City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo's plan to present a proposal to outlaw nips in the city of Boston. Those (laughs) basically those small little shots of alcohol, if you will. So on the show on Tuesday, Courtney Cox wants them to rank their favorite nips. Curtis says, I'd probably go with Mina Kimes, which obviously is an ethnic slur. So Mina, everyone knows, one of the best NFL analysts out there, really good at her job. She's actually of Korean descent, not Japanese. But this video, I first saw it on Wednesday and... Dave Cullenane from Kirk and show, I believe, is the one that first put it out there. And if he doesn't yeah. put this video out there, who knows when it gets out there? Like, maybe eventually it surfaces. But this was from a show on Tuesday morning. It didn't come out until Wednesday. So Curtis was on the show on Wednesday. So there's just, like, a lot to unpack with this situation. So did EI, do you think, did they were they aware that this was going on, the management, et cetera? Did they think this is just going to slip through, like— what did you make of how this sort of originally surfaced?
2: Yeah, it probably would have. I didn't see it. And uh, Dave and uh, a couple other people, but he was the first, put it on Twitter yesterday and got a little bit of momentum um, and, and became a thing. And, you know, I I get like heat from people sometimes saying, why well, haven't you written about this? Why well, haven't you written about this yet? And you got to make the call. So I, I called, uh, checked with Curtis, uh, I think text. Mike Thomas is a boss at uh, WEI and Odyssey in Boston. Ken Laird, who he used to work with, who uh, runs the daily operations over there. And uh, I don't know if this is a pun or not, but it was radio silence. I didn't hear a word back from people. And that made me think, all right, this is uh, something that is real and they're scrambling to handle it. And uh, so I went back and listened to Tuesday show and Wednesday's show and uh, I didn't hear the little bit of audio on that but the 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 clip was totally legitimate that uh, Cullinan put out there and um, you can uh, judge just judging by the reaction of some WEI people you know on Twitter and uh, talking amongst amongst themselves that uh, I heard from it was clearly real and clearly behind the scenes they were Uh, very worried about it. So I I wrote it up. Um, I checked with Odyssey's parent company and they told me that he didn't mean to say Mina Kimes. He meant to say Mila Kunis, uh, Mila Kunis, the actress. Um, And uh, I tweeted that out because my response was, you've got to be kidding me. Right. (laughs) My response was, uh, so I tweeted that out and I think that's when it blew up even more because I was, had been in contact with ESPN. I know Mina didn't know about it for most of the day. She uh, messaged with her last night and she said she, you know no, she's part of the Ringer extended family in a way. And uh, um, I just messaged her last night. She said, yeah, I've never heard of this guy. Um, and uh, she just kind of got wind of it later yesterday. But when she changed her profile picture to uh, Mila Kunis, it just exploded into this sort of, national story rather than a regional one
1: yeah and i give her a ton of credit for the way that she's handling it just putting up the mila kunis picture but and not
2: saying anything just you know yeah yeah i don't know i've never heard of that guy and that's that
1: so do you know if odyssey or wei has reached out to her or espn i have to imagine they at least reach out to espn right
2: I would hope so. I mean, ESPN was pissed the, I get a statement from their NFL uh, PR guy last night, you know, Mina didn't want to talk. I can, uh, or I'm actually not sure if she didn't want to talk, but they spoke for her and, and made her aware of it. And um, you know, they were furious. Uh, you know, this is unacceptable, that sort of thing. And in the response, and uh, I would imagine given that Curtis mentioned her name probably six or seven times in his. Uh, rambling apology this morning that uh, it, he would have tried to reach out to her or tried to get in contact with her. I think that would be the right thing to do, but I don't know if he's actually tried to do it. He was on the show for like seven minutes this morning and then began his week long suspension without pay.
1: Yeah. So, speaking of that apology, were you surprised, first of all, that they let him in studio to do that apology?
2: No. I mean, I got my ass out of bed at 5.50 this morning, figuring it would be something. Uh, and they did it right off the top. Uh, Greg Hill, and uh, brief intro to the show, and then introduced Curtis. And you know, I signed a little nervous, to, understandably, um, and uh, just uh, said his piece. And that was that. Uh, mentioned Mina, did the um, several times, did the i Sorry to Our Listeners. Uh, they did a little bit at the end where he said, this is not who we are, which, you know, historically in Boston sports radio, not just WEI, but there's been a lot of in- incidents like this, uh, to the point where I feel like I can't go a month right now without having to write about one of them. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was basically, uh, uh, that's not what I meant. I, I meant, uh, to say Mila Kunis's name didn't really explain what he meant by that, but I think you can probably draw a conclusion there. And then uh, that was it.
1: Yeah. So I guess like based on, I heard the apology, of course, this morning as well. He said that he was trying to make a sophomoric joke. So like, I guess the excuse that they're using is not to make light of this, but were, it was a sexist comment, not a racist comment. That was (laughs) like, that's what he was going for, I guess. That's
2: the defense. Yeah. That's what it seems like that, you know, it was a, I mean the word he they used that is a slur was uh nips and um apparently he meant that in a different way, although he didn't elaborate on it. I guess I can't blame him for not going into detail about what he really meant. He was, yeah. he was going away for a week without pay, but uh, that uh it still feels pretty hollow to me that uh that's what he intended. I mean the the, the video clip that uh Cullinane tweeted out, you know, he says makes his comment and then looks over at uh, Chris Scheim, who's the other producer. It's like, uh, you know, can you believe my great joke there? It's really kind of a smug look. So I don't know. I guess you got to take his word for it. But either way, it's, uh, it's kind of a sucky comment.
1: Yeah, and like I said, I, I worked with Curtis. He was really good to me. We got along fine. But obviously, this has become a major, major story. And I don't want to try to give my opinion on what exactly he meant, because I, I, I really don't know. I just I the explanation to me is just maybe as to me, it's just completely perplexing. Like, I have no idea like what they all, what they're trying to do in terms of the apology. But ESPN, you mentioned the statement that they released. They said there's no place for this type of hateful comments, which were uncalled for and extremely offensive. And so now it's about a little after 11 as we're recording right now. And to my knowledge, we got the apology from Curtis. But And you mentioned you sent some texts over there. But we haven't really seen like a statement from EEI or a statement from the parent company Odyssey up until yeah. this point, right? So it almost feels like they're testing how this goes with after the Curtis apology, like they really haven't addressed this. Is that surprising to you?
2: Not at all. Um, kind of standard protocol for them. I think when these sort of things happen uh, yesterday, when I reached out to Odyssey, Um you know he' the the guy got back to me uh and said and said yeah uh he didn't mean me Kimes, he meant uh, Mila Kunis uh and I said as I said before you, you got to be kidding me and he said I'll call you uh I I presumably to further explain it and I never heard a word back so that's really when they went into uh lockdown mode I guess I guess you'd say in terms of the information getting out uh I I agree with you Barrett I I think this is a a test run to see how long this background, uh, backlash lasts. Um, and if they feel like there are real consequences, whether it's with, I don't know, advertisers, listeners, um, something that damages their brand even more. I, I could see them deciding that, uh, you know, Curtis's extend- uh, punishment gets extended, or I actually thought because there are a lot of, a lot of speculation from some WEI people behind the scenes that, uh, personalities that uh, he was going to get fired over this. So I don't think that's completely out of the question. If this continues to be just a a maelstrom, like it has been for the last 12 hours.
1: Yeah. And what surprises me kind of going back to the beginning of this story is when Colinane puts that video out there, we obviously, I wasn't listening to the Greg Hill show on Tuesday. So I I was not aware of this comment happened, but obviously people at EI are listening to the show. So It's not like Curtis can go out there. He could have, but he obviously he didn't apologize on Wednesday and WEI or excuse me, they didn't apologize on Tuesday. WEI or Odyssey didn't say anything about it. They just went on like with their shows as if nothing happened. So it really does feel like to me, like sort of Odyssey looks really bad here, right? Like Curtis, obviously he's the one that made the comment, but this happened early on. This is a morning show. So this happened early on Tuesday morning. And it wasn't addressed until Cullinane puts that video out there. That, to me, is where Odyssey and EEI look really bad in this whole thing.
2: Yeah, I I thought the, the video clip was actually really interesting. Uh, I think he took it off their Twitch feed because uh, Curtis makes a joke and uh, quote unquote joke and, and looks over at the other producer. Um, when he makes a joke there's no response from the other hosts. They just keep on talking about what they're talking about. Like uh, I couldn't, I tried to, I couldn't tell how to read that, whether they just weren't really paying attention. They thought it was a stupid joke and they're not going to acknowledge it, or they're, they're just continuing on with their conversation about what the, uh, what the top five best nips are, because that's what they're the discussing you know fireball and blah, blah, blah. That's what they were talking about. Um, but, you know, that's kind of, with a corporation, that's kind of standard protocol. They're not going to. Maybe they, they. They probably should, but they're not going to bring attention to something that hasn't been uh, already discovered that would make them look really mm-hmm. bad. They're just going to kind of pretend uh, nobody knows this. This never happened. Let's move on. Let's maybe. You know, maybe it would say something to Curtis off the air. You know, don't. That was a stupid thing to say. You're lucky it didn't. uh blow up into this big thing what you know don't be an idiot but uh I don't really I understand why they didn't acknowledge it until it turned into this uh this big thing
1: so then you have Adam Schefter retweeted that he of course goes on EI regularly as well in terms of during the football season he's on there quite a bit but I'm wondering what this does to the station's relationship with ESPN because obviously there's a lot of big personalities from ESPN that you want to have on your station. Like, what does that do when it comes to that?
2: Yeah. Do they have EI people on, uh, ESPN people on regularly? I, I can't even think of it. I, I know they used to, but, uh, and, you know, Adam's always uh, used to go on quite a bit, but I don't know how strong that relationship is right now. Um, that's an interesting aspect of it to think about, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, I would say that's pretty far down the list of things they should be concerned about and, and things that are, they uh, 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 major worries for them right now. But, you know, they've been through this before in the past when things like this have happened, where, uh, you know, Fox Sports stopped allowing its people to come on at one point. And, you know, USPN's been mad with them at various points over the years. So it's nothing new for them. I don't know how important it is to them at this point, though.
1: Yeah. And I was there before any of those previous controversies that you're talking about. But when did don't... you start there? In uh, 2019. Oh, OK, yeah. Yeah. So I was there after that. But I got to imagine like it's a weird situation right now for the people working there, because it's not like any of the other shows are going to address it. I can't imagine that they'll be allowed to talk about this <laughs> no. now, <laughs> right, on on the station. So the phone lines, I, I would imagine they're going to be shut off today. Like they're not going to be able to take any calls because they're going to be worried that it's going to be about this. It's going to be about pranks, etc. The text line, it's going to be the same thing. But just I mean, I've talked to a couple of people over there <laughs> the as well. Text line. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. I mean, like it's going to it's got to be weird for some of the people that are and uncomfortable for people that are working in the building right now. Right. Yeah. But you know what? It's a lot of
2: sports radio shows in Boston have a lot of practice with this. Right. Isn't this what Thugger and Maz had to do a month ago? I mean, yeah. um when you have a self-inflicted controversy, or, you know, I guess that's the right word for it. You just put your head in the sand and get through your work day, right? Isn't that <laughs> and try not to have anything uh try not to have anybody get on the air that is is gonna bring up something that management doesn't want brought up, which is it's gonna be a challenge. But uh yeah, I think uh, you know, I don't think there's a lot of support for Curtis there at this point, uh, in terms of how people feel about him and and uh, the light that this situation puts. Puts the station in whether they like it or not, so um I imagine the people on other shows have nothing to do with this. They're just grinding through their their through their day and trying to uh avoid any awkward interactions with with callers or or uh, listeners,
1: yeah, and it does feel like to me too Chad, just looking at this on a bigger, broader view, it really feels like okay, yesterday was maybe the start, but even this morning, I almost feel like after the apology, this is just the start of this thing and We've already seen it like on this is caught on on national publications. it's all over the local news, like I feel like we're still in sort of the infancy stage of this situation, like this is gonna be going on for the next day and a half or so,
2: yeah i mean i I don't know how it gets bigger, um you know sometimes these things I mean I'm gonna rip sports radio in Boston in general in a column either tomorrow or Saturday, but I don't know how uh. These, this gets any more magnified unless, I mean, really, unless Mina did something with it or said something about it. And I, d- I don't expect her to. I mean, mm-hmm. she doesn't want to be involved with this. Um, it sucks that she get dragged into it. She, I would say her Q rating for ESPN personalities is as high as just about anybody. So, yeah, I, people are going to be in her corner. And if she did speak out, it would probably bring it to another level where, or, or uh, EI would have to make a, uh, a bigger decision on Curtis, but I would be shocked if that happened. And I don't know what what would happen locally to take it to a higher level. I mean, you know, sometimes the, the local news stations fly in and uh, yeah, make a, you know, make a big deal out of something or bigger deal out of something for a couple of days. But um, the, the, the approach always in these situations for the the corporations is Suspend the person, get the person off the air at least, and then hope it blows over. And uh, I imagine it it, kind of sucks, but I imagine that's the way it's going to go after another day or so here.
1: Yeah. So do you imagine that next Wednesday that they will be back to their full show with Curtis? Or do you think that you could get an extension and see how it goes from there? Or like, what do you think the end game here will ultimately be? Oh, are there uh, odds on this? Um, do you is this one of your parlays? Let me check on FanDuel. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say fifty-one percent. He's back, uh, and you know maybe they mute his mic for a while. So they should have done that anyway a long time ago. But uh, maybe they uh, he doesn't talk as much as he does because he it, it, the the comedy made was an interjection into a conversation. You know he's producing the show, co-producing the show. Um, and he just interjected like a wise ass comment, as you do on sports radio, uh, 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 while other people were talking. And um, I think maybe one solution is to have him talk a little bit less, because he can be a can be a domineering personality on that show. And I know with a lot of EI shows in the last couple of years, the producers have gained prominence on the air, and I don't think it's really enhanced uh, anything. So I, I think one approach would probably just have uh, at least in the beginning, have Curtis participate less.
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad we had you on to talk about this because obviously it's the biggest story. And like I said, I've, I've never had any issues with Curtis, but obviously this is a major thing going on and it's a major issue here, not just locally, nationally. So I felt that it was necessary to discuss it and some of the elements of it have completely surprised me in terms of what's been going on since this has occurred and the fact that it, ultimately- It's
2: ridiculous.
1: Yeah, and ultimately- <laughs> I mean- Like, I just keep coming back to the fact we would have never known about this if we didn't see this video from Cullinane yesterday. Like, we would have never, well, at least I I would have never known. Maybe people that were listening to EI, some people would have known, and maybe they got stuff, like, maybe people were calling up and saying, hey, are you guys going to address this? But I personally wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have seen it anywhere if they didn't put that, if Cullinane didn't put that out there.
2: No, and, you know, I I cover sports media, but I cover it broadly, um, nationally, too. And I would not have been able to do this for 13 years on this beat if I listened to every minute of every hour of all shows on Boston Sports Radio <laughs> every day. So, um, you know, there uh, the, the way I listen to it, the way I follow the shows is I'll jump around depending on what the topic is. And whether they have an interesting guest, like I'll listen to Touch of Rich when Mike Gorman is on every time um, or, or something like that. I, uh, I find, honestly, I find the Hill Show pretty hard to listen to sometimes. And um, so I probably don't listen to that one as much. I certainly wouldn't have picked up on it. You know, it had happened Tuesday and this didn't blow up until Wednesday. But, uh,
1: um, you know, it's uh,
2: it's
1: a good thing that it did. All right. So let's get to some lighter stuff here before we let you go, because I do want to get to your book. But you had a take recently where I haven't seen this anywhere else. So I want to get your to reiterate Uh-oh. that take. So you had um, so you had an article up. It, it was last week in the I think it was the 17th. I think it may have been St. Paddy's Day, but. It was basically about some of the issues the Celtics had and getting ready for the postseason with Joe Missoula, the first year head coach. And so Smart, like he looked better in Sacramento on Tuesday night, but it's been a really, really, really bad stretch for him post-injury. So everybody's really pointing out like the fourth quarter minutes now, like should Smart be playing, et cetera. But you had to take where with Damon Stoudemire leaving, you're concerned about Marcus Smart. So like we've all talked about the issues that Smart had, but I've never heard that. So you think that now not having Damon Stodemeyer around is going to actually hurt Marcus Smart, more maybe more so than anybody else on the team?
2: Uh, I know that uh Stoudemire was the guy who spoke plainly, straightforwardly to Marcus, and Marcus mm. respected him because Stodemeyer is an accomplished NBA player. All these guys, when they were kids, knew who he was. And he has this Stoudemire has this demeanor about him, like he's seen it all. He's a really likable um just straightforward uh almost casual but truth-telling guy and marcus needs that when he's uh you know I, I don't know if you've talked about it i know i've written about it but part of the issue with this team is when tatum's dominating the ball and bringing the ball up suddenly marcus is on the wing and marcus gets into that old mode that he used to have where oh i've got to be the number three scorer now i'm, I'm the shooter on the wing and uh, i just want to see marcus bring the ball up be a point guard. Uh, get the ball into Tatum's hands in good spots, and and that's the way their offense, you know, move the ball like they did against the Kings the other night. That's the way their offense operates best. And Stoudemire was—I I don't know how much Joe does it. I'm sure he does, but Stoudemire was a guy who talked to um, talked to Marcus about staying focused on what he does best. And Marcus, for all of his uh, regression into bad habits lately, listened to Stoudemire. Now you—you you look. I mean, Brian. Their bench last year had Will Hardy, Ime, and Damon Stoudemire, and those guys are all gone now. That is a uh, no matter whether you think Joe's the right guy for this job or not, that's quite a drain from that bench that uh, got to the finals last year.
1: Yeah, it is pretty crazy to think about too. Like going back to something we talked about at the beginning of the season, like Joe Mazzulla wasn't even in the front row last year; he was in the <laughs> had back to buy row. He bought a ticket, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's incredible, but it's a fair point. It's an interesting point that I had not thought of. Oh, so I wanted to get your take on the Brady situation now because Greg Olson, he actually did a really good interview with Rosillo a couple weeks back talking about his role where it's like now he's the number one guy. But when Brady comes back, he's going to be the number two guy for Fox and Olson. I thought he was really good, like and he's not obviously the big name, but I thought he did a really good job this year. I'm wondering, like. Do you think that Tom ever calls a game for Fox? I know there's a lot of money there, but what's the point of like taking this year off and then getting into it? Like Olsen's only going to get better at this job. Like we've seen it. He's he's really good. Yeah. Like it it just feels like obviously it's an unfair situation for Olsen. But what's he going to do? Obviously, you're going to be the number one guy. You're going to take this opportunity. But do you think Brady ever gets into the booth at Fox?
2: Is he ever really going to be done playing football? I mean, he's got a year good with the point. Niners ahead, one with Miami at some point. Um, you know, he'll go to the Raiders for a bit to play with Josh. I I do. I think he's serious about wanting to be good at it because uh, he talked about Brady, talked about uh, talking to Peyton and uh, Eli and uh, you know, probably shouldn't talk to Romo about it at this point, but kind of picking the brains of uh, guys about. Uh, what what the transition into the booth is like? What makes them good? What listeners want to hear? So I really believe he's taking this time, you know, to kind of get his life uh, uh, the way he wants it, but also to to make sure he's good at this when uh, when that three hundred and seventy five million dollar contract kicks in. So I think we do see him there, but. Uh, it isn't fair to Olsen because he's really good. He's really good in the moment of something happens and he tells you immediately what happened and why. And uh, Romo never even did that back when he was actually... Uh, you know really well prepared and the new thing in the booth uh and it's a, it's a hard thing to do and Olsen has it already so i guess it's a pleasant problem for fox to have they have brady coming in they already have a good guy who is well received during the, in the super bowl at burkhart but it could also be a case where other networks look at Olsen and say this guy's really good. He's being screwed over by Fox. Uh let's, you know, Amazon could try to bring him over if Herb Street doesn't want to do it long term. Or uh, you know, how long's Collinsworth gonna do it on Sunday night football? So I think Olson's gonna have real opportunities if uh you know, if Brady does uh, end up there a year the year after this one.
1: Yeah. Maybe when Brady like retires for the eighth time in like 2040 <laughs> or something, that that's when I'll get into the booth. All right, Chad, before we let you go, we mentioned your book off the top, The Boston Globe Story of the Red Sox, More Than a Century of Championships, Challenges, and Characters. And as I said earlier, congratulations on the project. So what are we going to get out of this book? Give us like a glimpse into it.
2: Well, it's a compilation of the Globe's baseball coverage uh, through Red so- Globe's Red Sox coverage through their mutual history. The Globe's been around longer than the Red Sox, uh, believe it or not. So, um, And one of the things I discovered putting together this book which is it's 420 pages about 300 of the best articles throughout Red Sox history um was that the globe covered the Red Sox really thoroughly at the beginning like there were 3000 word world series game stories because there was no other way to get the information so um the old hmm. stuff's good and then you have you know, like Gammons in the 70s, his 75 legendary Game 6 uh, game story, um, pretty much t- uh, have a story for every significant event in Boston history and uh, some quirky stuff well. So it was uh, a privilege to, to put it together and it seems to be uh, getting really nice reception from people.
1: Yeah. Well, I can't wait to read it now, Chad. And like I said, thanks so much for coming on. I know it's not like the easiest thing to talk about right now in terms of what's going on over there at WEI, but we certainly appreciate it. That is Chad Finn from the Boston Globe. Chad, thanks so much for the time, man. Thanks, man.
2: I'll I'll come on again a month from now. And there's another uh, scandal in Boston sports radio. Somebody saying something stupid.
1: (laughs) Oh, boy. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Globe, it is Pete Abraham. Pete, how are you, my friend? Thanks for coming back. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. All right. So you're at the WBC in Miami. Before we get into some of the specifics, the environment, it looked absolutely insane through the TV. I love this event to begin with, but it seemed like this year it went to a totally different level. But what was the atmosphere like being at the ballpark?
0: It was like a a World Series Game 7 for three nights in a row. The 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 crowds were on edge. Uh, there was an enormous amount of media. I've never seen that many media people at Miami's ballpark before. Uh, and everybody was into the game. You know, you know, everybody showed up early for batting practice. Uh, you know, the announcements, so the starting lineups, you know, there were just cheers every time anything happened. And what made it really neat was, you know, the fans from both of the countries, you know, everybody was wearing, you know, had a flag or a hat or a T-shirt or something representing their country. Uh, and even the people who had tickets for the final, whose teams weren't in it, you know, there were like Dominican and Puerto Rican fans at the game wearing their shirts and wearing waving their flags. So uh, it was, yeah, it was really fun. And and uh, the game when when Cuba played, uh, that there was like you know a lot of protesting going on outside the park. It was just you know like every time you went went to that park Whoa. for three days in a row, it, was, it felt like a big deal.
1: Yeah, and the way that it finished, to Otani against Trout. I mean, that was just incredibly awesome to see. And. Otani, this is a guy that eventually is going to get like the biggest contract in Major League history. He's coming out to pitch the ninth inning in the WBC, which I thought was so awesome to see. And he gets Mookie Betts in Mike Trout, which was just incredible. I mean, we all know how great Otani is, but that was awesome to watch. So Yoshida, by the way, hits that three run home run when Japan was trailing three to nothing on Monday against Mexico. Unbelievably clutch hit. So he sets the WBC record 13 RBIs. He hit 409 Pete, he slugged 727. He gets back and Cora says he's got swag and everybody's pretty sure he's going to hit at this level. So I was already starting to get excited about Yoshida after hearing Cora earlier in spring training say, hey, we envision him more of a middle of the lineup hitter rather than a leadoff guy, which that was the impression I had when they signed him. But Cora says, no, he's hitting in the middle of the lineup. So. I mean, I know it's the WBC, but you got to be more excited after seeing the performance there. But in the bat-to-ball skills they were on display, I'm so fired up to watch this guy. I mean, how high are people in the Red Sox organization? Not because of the WBC, but it almost sort of validates, like, their impression of the guy in some sense, right?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if you believe other teams, everybody thinks the Red Sox overpaid for him. And the Red Sox have been adamant going back to December that they didn't, that they felt like this is what he's actually worth. Uh, they wanted to do everything they had to do to make sure they got him. Obviously they did uh, the posting period, which can go up to 45 days lasted about five hours. That's how <laughs> convinced they were that they, they wanted him. So it was, um, you know, when you see him in person, he, he's a diminutive guy. He's, you know, he's about five, eight, he's certainly, you know, he's on a muscle bound kind of slugger, but he's got an amazing ability to get the bat to the ball and he manages to to hit it with power and the home run that he hit. I mean, that ball was about two inches off the ground and inside, and he was able to get his bat under it and pull it. And watching that swing, I'm like, I don't know how he managed to keep the ball fair. And I don't know how he managed to hit the ball out. I mean, if he had just hit that ball over the first baseman's head for a single, that would have been a nice piece of hitting. But the fact that he hit the ball out like he did was incredible. And when you talk to the Japanese journalists, the guys who have seen him play, they all couldn't understand the the idea that he would lead off because he never let off in Japan his entire career. He was always a three or four hitter. And it looks like that's what he'll be for the Red Sox, too.
1: Yeah, that was such an amazing swing. Like, even just to get your hands inside that pitch, like, it was just ridiculous to see that ability. And I do think in some sense, Pete, obviously, we've talked about it before. Heimblum has been criticized. He's had some really bad moves going back to the Mookie Betts trade, etc. And he's come under fire over the past couple years. But, man, if this thing works and he was right and everybody else was sort of wrong about it, it is going to be something that looks good for him, right? If, like, it's the impression is... Hey, everybody else thought you guys overpaid. You actually, maybe, if this guy turns out to be what we think he could be, we massively underpaid for this guy. It could be a huge win for Heim Bloom.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny when you look at Heim Bloom's time. He's got a lot of the small stuff right, you know, yeah. uh, Whitlock and and some of the other pitching moves, and he's you know some of the bench guys that have become better than what you thought they might have been. But the big stuff has been a problem. You know, the Mookie Betts trade wasn't great, and they didn't get really get anything back for Andrew Benintendi. Uh, you know, they, it seems like they botched up the Bogarts negotiations and, and now they make this other big move. And, and I think because of maybe those other moves, everybody was like, what are they doing? You know, how come they're, they gave 90 million to this player that other teams thought was worth, you know, were worth 30 million or 40 million. Now, you know, we got to wait and see how he looks against big league pitching, obviously right. in the WBC, I was looking at it. About half of those hits came against guys who aren't big league pitchers. Uh, now a lot of them came against guys who were legitimate pitchers, but uh, so, you know, we'll see how he looks, because uh, when you talk to the Japanese players when they make that transition, playing outside, playing on grass, uh, playing more frequently, you know, that takes a little getting used to. And, and a lot of the Japanese players struggle at first before they figure it out. Now, I, it wouldn't surprise me that he, if he doesn't have a great April, but, you, you know, what's going to matter is how does he look in May and June?
1: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Like the guy and I know he's making the signal yesterday that he was like tired. He's going to be exhausted with all the travel he's done. Lately as well, so hopefully he has a good start to the season, but I wouldn't be surprised to your point that if he cut, gets off to a little bit of a slow start because of everything, the transition period, et cetera. But I am very excited for him. So before we get back into some Red Sox stuff, Pete, just coming off this momentum from the World Baseball Classic and now with the pitch clock, which... I feel like I talk to people that never watch spring training baseball all of a sudden watching spring training baseball like this looks like a totally different product. I do feel like the sport has some real momentum here entering the season more so than we've seen really in a long time. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've covered baseball for a long time now, about 20 years and. You know, every year it's always uh, everybody writes some story about, you know, what's the here's the problem with baseball and the decline of baseball and nobody's watching baseball and young people don't watch baseball, you know, and all this other stuff. Well, now you're starting to see things change a little bit. The, the WBC was, a, you know, an unqualified success and put a, a spotlight on a lot of players, a lot of young players, a lot of up and coming players. And then the pitch clock has changed the game. You know, where you cannot, you know, you might be able to watch the game in two and a half hours now. It's not gonna be a sit around all night. And if you go to Fenway Park, you're not gonna get home until one o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, this is where, you know, you, you have to pay attention because things are happening on the field. You know, you're not gonna be able to look down on your phone and and wander around the house waiting, you know, waiting for something to happen. So I think, you know, that's a great thing for the game. And I wonder, you know, the things that I wonder about are the long-term implications for this. How much more attractive will this make the game? To younger athletes, can they can they get mm. guys uh, who have always you know thought about more about football and basketball and get them interested in baseball because there's more action on the field, there's more athleticism on the field, it's a quicker pace. Uh, we're not going to know these things for years to come, but in talking to the players, they all, with the, with the exception of a few pitchers who think maybe they're being rushed, the guys, the, the position players and the hitters all think it's great because it's a game now with. You take the shifting out, there's more athleticism by the second baseman in the shortstop. Uh, you can run more, you know, they're, they're, with the stolen base rules that they have. Uh, if you get all of those things back in the game, it's a different game and it's a better game.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't think I thought about just from my own perspective, the short term, right? Because I'm going to enjoy the product even more like baseball has me. I'm going to watch no matter what, but I'm going to enjoy the product more. And I feel like the casual fan was. Well, too, but I didn't think of that long term impact in terms of younger kids getting more involved because we've seen sort of a tail off in terms of young people wanting to play baseball. So that's that's a really fascinating point that I didn't even think about. All right, Pete. So we talked about one newcomer in Yoshida. Adam Duvall started off slow, but he's heated up. He's hitting for real power right now. But this is a guy, too, that 30 home runs in three different seasons. Now, all three of those years is he's been north of 500 plate appearances. That's the problem. Getting him those plate appearances because he struggled with health. Now, he was a monster with runners in scoring position last year, second in all of baseball and RBIs, and first in home runs, I should say, in 2021 when he was actually healthy. This could be a game changer if he's right health-wise. I know he's coming off surgery, but just a one-year, $7 million deal. On top of the power, we know he provides gold-glove caliber defense. I'm kind of surprised there wasn't much of a market, and the Sox didn't really sign him until late here. Where are you at with Duvall? Were you kind of surprised by the lack of a market for him, or was it just the injuries?
0: Yeah, I think that's and that's the case for a number of these Red Sox guys that, you know, theoretically, they could be very good if they can stay on the field. I thought it was interesting uh, that, you know, the Braves didn't make a big effort to keep him and they've got a lot of good young talent. Uh, they felt like, you know, they could spend their money elsewhere. And I talked to Brian Snicker a couple weeks ago in person and I asked him a couple things, you know, can can this guy play center field? And he said, well, he played center field for us when we won the World Series but we prefer to more in the corners, but yeah, he can play center field. So that's going to be a big question. He's never been a full-time center fielder, which Mm -hmm. the Red Sox want him to do. Uh, Can he stand up physically to do that over the course of the entire year? That's what we're going to have to find out. Offensively, when he's healthy, he's, he's very productive. How much will playing center field every day maybe damage that part of his game? I think, you know, you want to have to wait and see what happens there too. I think when you see, you know, Verdugo playing right field, full-time for the first time over a full year. Yoshida, where there's some questions about him defensively, and Duval, who's never been a full-time center fielder, they're going to have to work a lot to keep those guys fresh. I think Tapia is going to be an important guy for them. And maybe eventually Duran will be an important guy for them. They're going to have to be sure they don't overwork some of those guys and at the same time position them in, in such a way that they can get the most out of them defensively because I think with all three guys – They're either new to the position or there's questions about whether they can play that position. So the outfield defense is going to be something to keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, and I talked about this recently with Julian McWilliams of the Globe, but Duran going to the World Baseball Classic, it just doesn't really feel like for his time with the big club this year, it made much sense, right? I mean, it's not like he got at-bats for Team Mexico. Yeah, I I mean, what was the point? What was the point of him going there?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I understand it, right. His father's from Mexico and he, he wanted to represent, you know, his, his adopted country and and do something for his dad. His dad's been a big, uh, you know, the guy who basically got him involved in baseball. I totally get that. And I, and being there, I can understand why he wanted to be there. It was a, mm. an unbelievable atmosphere, but you know, you do wonder if his agent or somebody should have said to him, you know, man, it might be better for you to stay in Red Sox camp and, and win a job than to be away for a couple of weeks. So uh, now, you know, it, it, he's going to catch up fast. And when the time comes, you know, if, if he can contribute, he's going to get plenty of chances to contribute, but it's uh yeah. He, he, I thought coming into camp, he had put himself in a good position. He was, he seemed like he had changed the, the way he was hitting. He he was making more contact. It, it looked like he had worked a lot on his defense and then we didn't see him for three weeks. So, uh, and now he's got about a week to impress them, which is really not much. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes for him. I, I would suspect he doesn't make the opening day roster. I think Tapia will. Uh, but, you know, given the health and all this other stuff, we're definitely going to see him at some point, and then he'll have a, You know, we'll have a chance to see what he can do.
1: Yeah, and especially, too, with Duran, like he changed some stuff up in terms of where he's holding the bat. And so that would have been more beneficial to be getting more reps in terms of spring training. I get it, too, like in terms it, – it's a great event, so I get why he wanted to go, but I th- do think it hurt him in terms of his – time this year with the big club. All right. So Trish and Cassis, besides the pinky thing, he's had a great spring training and I know it's not serious. He's going to be back in the lineup. We're recording Thursday morning. He's going to be back in the lineup today, but he's hitting for power. He's getting on base. I know Cora said they're going to mix it and match it with the leadoff spot. They're going to hit Rafi second. It appears Turner third and then Yoshida, who we're talking about cleanup. And I'm guessing they'll go with Kike against left-handed pitching in that leadoff spot, which brings me to Cassis. Like, He walked 20% of his plate appearances after he came up, which was second to only Aaron Judge. We know that he hits for power. It kind of reminds me of like the Schwarber thing where Schwarber, when he came over to the Red Sox, they hit him in that leadoff spot a lot where he walks, he hits for power. And man, I would be awfully tempted. I know that would be a lot of lefties at the top of the lineup when you're talking about back to back Cassis and Rafi and then Yoshida hitting Fourth in the lineup, but Pete, I would be tempted just to put him there every day and see what he does at that leadoff spot. But do you think he's going to be one of the guys that factors into the leadoff spot?
0: It seems like that. And, and Cor, the way Cor has termed it, is that there'll be certain pitchers that want to put him at leadoff, and and that it'll make sense that on that particular day. What I've what I've kind of found interesting during the High and Bloom era is they don't seem to have any regard about having a leadoff hitter. Like they haven't gone out and pursued like a a, a regular, like a, what you would consider to be a traditional leadoff hitter. I don't know if that's something where their data has said this doesn't matter, you know. Uh, but I always look at it like I think there's a lot too much is paid on the lineup. Everybody kind of sweats the lineup. I've always thought you want your best hitters to get the most at bats. That basically that's all it is. So you want your best guys hitting in the you know at the top of the, at the top of the order. And that having like the traditional you know, well this guy's going to get on base and can run. The next guy moves him over. The third guy can hit for power. I don't know that that necessarily makes sense. But I do wonder if you want a big guy like Casas hitting first because it clogs the bases potentially. So I, I don't know you know, it would be nice if they had sort of, if Kike Hernandez was, was did a lot better job at getting on base, it would be an easy decision, but he's not a really an on base guy. So I don't know who's their ideal leadoff hitter. I, I, it might be Verdugo, but I, they don't seem to think that. So yeah, I, I suspect. Yeah, you'll probably see maybe 20, 25 games over the course of the year when Casas sits leadoff, which is going to look funny. And it's it's going to be unusual, but maybe, you know, maybe it works.
1: Yeah, it, it's a fair point. And with Kike Hernandez, like, He had that great stretch when he went back to the leadoff spot in 2021 from, what, June 27th until he got COVID, where he was red hot. He was actually, like, legitimately one of the best players in the sport for, like, a month and a half. But we've seen it before. He's a streaky guy. He's a launch angle guy. And career, he's only hit 226 against righties. So I I don't think you can justify hitting him leadoff when it's a right-handed pitcher. He just hasn't been productive there. So and then that brings me to some of the other things with this lineup. And Christian Arroyo, who... He's a guy that is going to get an opportunity here to seemingly play every day. And now he's a guy, of course, we know that doesn't walk. He's hitting over 300 at the time of the recording here in spring training. But the on-base percentage is the same. (laughs) He doesn't walk at all. He has clobbered lefties like since he joined the Red Sox. Past two years, 296, 329, 885 OPS. Doesn't really hit well against right-handed pitching. But we do know that he's a really good defensive player. He's made like, what, one error at second base over the past two years, with the Red Sox and the advanced metrics like him too. What do you think the conclusion is going to be at the end of this year with the Royals? Do you think we'll say, Oh, he actually is an everyday player or maybe he's more suited to the utility role that he was in previously.
0: Yeah. He's, he's one of those guys. Whenever you're a first round pick, I think, you know, you always get second, third and fourth chances because other teams always believe there had to be a reason he went in the first round. You know, you don't make a mistake usually with a first round pick. And his issue has always been staying on the field. He's been a good hitter, but he's always had injuries and, and other guys have passed him. And then teams have said, OK, well, we, you know, we, we can move on from him. Now, the Red Sox have given him a chance to stick. Uh, he's got a chance to stick in a position where he should be good defensively. It'll be interesting to see to what degree the lack of defensive shifting affects him, because the Red Sox used to do a very good job of putting him in the right places. I can remember a game in Anaheim when mm-hmm. he was in shallow right field and, uh, and caught a line drive off of Otani's bat to end a game. Now he's going to have to be now more of a traditional second baseman and show his athleticism, but he is a good athlete. It could be a good spot for him. And, you know, he's another guy. Kike's in that same boat where if healthy, you think, you know, we might have something here, but he's also a guy who's never played an entire season before. So you're, you're, you know, you're asking him to do something he's never done before. So until you see whether he can do it or not, you're really not going to know, but I know in talking to him, he felt like he had a great winner, the things that he did to try to keep his body in good shape. He's changed a lot of his habits. He's not lifting as much every day. He's not hitting as much every day. He's trying to do all the things to keep himself on the field. It hasn't affected him at the plate, which is a good sign. So maybe he's come across something that can keep him out there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great point on the health, because that's obviously been a concern with him. And to the utility role part, the first time they put him at first base, he ends up getting injured trying to stretch. So maybe he is meant to play just one position. So... You mentioned Verdugo in terms of the possibility of him being at the top of the order. Big hit in the WBC in the semifinals, but he didn't really swing the bat well there overall, although he was swinging the bat really well prior to the tournament in spring training. But I just look at Verdugo, obviously, coming off a down year where the defense is going to get back to where it was previously. And I kind of compare him to early Andrew Benintendi, right? 2017, 352 on base, 18, 366. Then in 19, he bulks up. The power actually goes down and the on-base percentage goes down. But then what we saw last year is he did get the on-base percentage back up where he looked like Andrew Benintendi previously, where he was that more athletic version of himself. And with Verdugo, if you go back to his final year with the Dodgers, 2019, he was at 12 defensive runs saved, which is really good compared to last year where he's at minus five. And I know that he was banged up, but we also heard he got himself in better shape and he looks like he's in better shape as well. He's a good bat-to-ball guy, doesn't strike out, very similar to Andrew Benintendi when it comes to that. But do you think that we can get Verdugo to be comparable to the player that Benintendi was in terms of just the consistency on a year-to-year thing? Because I think that's the biggest thing with Verdugo is now he's got to realize kind of like who he is as a player. You're not going to hit for a ton of power, but you can be a guy that hits for a very good average. You should be a lot better defensively than you were a season ago. Do you think we get a good version of Verdugo this year?
0: Yeah, I think... In one way or another, you're going to look back on the end of last season as being, I think, uh, an important moment for Alex Verdugo. When Alex Cora was asked at the end of last year, what do you what do you want to see in, in terms of improvement from your players going into next season? The first guy he mentioned, and this was all on the record, was Alex Verdugo. He said, Verdugo is a pretty good player. He needs to become a better player. We need to get more out of him. He needs he basically said he needs to take baseball more seriously. He needs to be better at his preparation. He needs to be better in his conditioning. And Redugo, I think, was taken aback by that. That was the first time he had really been criticized publicly. He he lashed back at it a little bit and said, you know, I, you know, this is something we'll take care of. And he seemed a little not hurt by it, but I think surprised that it came out in public. And then he showed up at camp and he looks completely different. He's much thinner. He's much more athletic. You can tell he spent a lot of time in the winter working on baseball stuff. Uh, and the WBC was was a little bit deceptive because he had 23 at-bats and he only struck out twice. So he was putting the ball in play. He wasn't getting much for it. Uh, mm. He felt like he wasn't. His swing wasn't dialed in quite, quite enough. But you know the contact was there. But just the production wasn't. And then in, in the semifinals, when they really needed him, he came up with a huge hit, hit the ball hard a couple times. Uh, maybe that's a good sign as he comes back to camp. But I think at, he's at a stage of his career where he's probably felt like, hey, I made the big leagues. I have played on some good teams. I made a few bucks. Well, now he's coming up on you know arbitration and and maybe free agency and a chance to really do something for himself and his family. He, he's got two kids, you know, a, a lot of this is in the mix and this could be maybe a year where he, he becomes the guy, every you know, the Red Sox thought he would be when they traded Mookie Betts for him. So the, the big question is right field because playing right field at Fenway park is a lot different than playing left field at Fenway park. They feel like he can handle it. They need him to handle that. And, and that's going to be, I think, defensively where him getting in better shape is going to make a big difference. He doesn't need to be a 25, 30 home run guy. Like you said, he needs to get on base in this lineup. And I think where he plays in a lineup, I guess probably will tell you what, you know, what they think of him. If it's, I think he could be, you know, a guy who's right in the top of that lineup. Uh, I think he's probably better suited for that than hitting fifth or sixth, but you know, there's, there's not necessarily this lineup. the, The pieces aren't don't come together necessarily easily. But we'll see where it looks like in April and, and kind of how that goes, because I, the Mexican talking to Benji Gill and the coaches from Mexico, they all thought a really lot of him. They, they feel like he's ready for a big year.
1: Yeah. And if you look at it, too, like we talk about some of the new rules in Major League Baseball in terms of the pitch clock, but you also got the shifts as well. And we know Verdugo, since he came over to the Red Sox, he's been top 20 in terms of ground ball rate, and he only hit about 226. On ground balls last season, like he may get some, he may get more lucky when it comes to that, just because of the shifts going into this season. So it's a huge year for Verdugo. It's also kind of a huge year for Tanner Houck, and he's going to start the season in the rotation. And Wednesday night he got lit up. It was ten hits, eight earned, four and two thirds, and I get it, all the precursors like it's spring training, etc. But now we're looking at what sixteen earned in seventeen and two thirds in the spring. He didn't walk anybody on Wednesday, which, a good, which is a good thing because he has been doing that. But it's like the command, right? So he's not walking people, but the location is not there with Hulk. I just, I'm really, and I get it. They need to put him in the rotation to begin the season. But I just look at him, Pete. I just don't think he has the command to be able to be a starter in the rotation. So I'm, I'm worried about Hulk entering the season in that role because I just he loses it so quickly.
0: Yeah, I've, I have long been a proponent of two things that Gary Whitlock is a starter and that Tanner Hauk is a reliever. And I, I will die on that Hill. I I am convinced that I am right about that. I think Whitlock's got the the repertoire to be a great starter. And I think Hauk does not, I think Hauk is a fastball slider guy. His other pitches, the the splitter and occasional changeup aren't that good. He's got the mentality to be a reliever too. He's one of those guys who he he doesn't get rattled if there's somebody on third base and there's one out. Um, I think he's perfect to be, uh, you know, face three or four hitters. And then we'll see in a couple of days. I don't know that he's the guy you want to have pitched to a lineup over five or six innings. And I think that's what we saw yesterday. He got, he got batted around and now right now, like you said, he, he needs to be in the, in the rotation because they're running out of starting pitchers. Bayo is going to make a, I think a pretty quick entrance into the rotation and the same is true of Whitlock. I think you'll see Whitlock after one turn and Bayo after two turns and then how goes back into the bullpen where he belongs so I wouldn't get too worked up about you know how he looks as a starter because I don't think that's a long term proposition. Uh, but you know, however, you know the way he pitched yesterday, the, you know, it, you know he needs to just get get himself straightened out before the season starts one way or another. But I think if you if he's one of the setup guys for Kenley Jansen, I think it, it's a great mix because he's a different kind of pitcher than Kenley, uh, different kind of stuff. And if you have Hawk in the seventh or eighth inning and, and then Kenley in the ninth, I think they're they're so much better bullpen wise than they were last year.
1: Yeah, no doubt about that. I just, and maybe that's his role. Maybe he turns out to long-term be a great reliever. I just, I, I've seen enough of the Tanner Houck experience at in the rotation. And like we said, like he's not going to be a starter, you would think, for the majority of the season. But so you mentioned Garrett Whitlock. I agree with you. And I had no issue whatsoever with them putting him in the rotation to begin this year. Last year, I had issues that they didn't put him back in the bullpen just because he wasn't ready for that role at that particular point in time. He came into the season basically being prepared to be a reliever he had the surgery so like his numbers last year too like this guy is out there and he's dealing with a situation where he's basically pitching on one hip and I just look at the numbers like okay second time through the order it wasn't good but it was his first time and he was injured facing major league hitters the second time through an order right I mean he's a rule five guy that came in immediately and he came out of the bullpen so that's going to take a little bit of time and the walk rates are really good 90th percentile 89th percentile the past couple years I love the mentality. The command, as I mentioned, is outstanding. The stuff is really good. The slider wasn't great last year in terms of the results. That's why his numbers are actually better against lefties than righties. But all the stuff looks good with the slider. It just, he got a little bit unlucky and he missed his spots at times. But I think he has potential to be a front end of the rotation guy. And I'm very optimistic about what he can bring this year.
0: Yeah, oh, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. And, you know, one thing I remember last year after he would pitch, he, I mean, And I'm not exaggerating this. He had trouble getting from the trainer's room back to his locker. Watching him walk across the clubhouse, it was painful to watch. I mean, you know, it wasn't that like he needed anybody to help him. He would take a step, a couple steps, and kind of stop, and then make a take another couple steps to get to his locker. Uh, He was in a lot of pain, and he, you know, he he did a solid for them pitching through the pain that he did when when they thought that they were still in contention. And then eventually they just shut it down and he had the surgery the first day I got to spring training on February 6th, I, I was watching some of the pitchers run. And then I noticed, I, I said, well, geez, that's, you know, that's Garrett. And, and he's running the distance of the their conditioning field. <laughs> and he came over to me and he goes a lot different, huh? I said, yeah, completely. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, I feel like I'm a, you know, like I'm a new man. And I think just the idea that he's not out there pitching in pain and, and, you know, really, you know, not being able to do the, you know, he's got excellent extension, and he wasn't able to get that extension because of his hips. I think you're going to see a, a completely different pitcher this year. He's looked really good in spring training. Uh, he, You know, the, the stuff that I watched him on the side as he was coming back, you know, they, they were slow playing him because of the hip. He looked great in the bullpens. The coaches were walking away, nodding their heads about how great he was. Uh, I think you're going to see a completely different guy, a completely different pitcher. And it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if by the end of the year, we're, we're talking about him being one of the best pitchers in the American League. I think his stuff is that good.
1: Yeah, I'm with you, too, on the extension. It's in the 99th percentile. So that 95, 96, like it's looking like 97, 98, like that fastball gets right on top of you, even though it isn't near 100. It looks like it's near 100 because of that extension. So you mentioned the bullpen in terms of Tanner Houck possibly being there in terms of the setup guys for Jansen. Now, Chris Martin was one of the big time ads in the offseason lowest walk rate in Major League Baseball last year, but he has not really had a good spring. He was shaky again. Now, he did have the three strikeouts in that game last night on Wednesday night, but he also was getting hit. He's had some issues throughout the spring. He's a guy that does have a track record where he's been good for a while here. But any concern with this or is this just sort of shaking out the cobwebs? No,
0: guys like, you know, Richard Blyer and Chris Martin, when they get to spring training and they know they have jobs, they have guaranteed contracts, all of that. They'll go out there on certain days and just say, "I'm just going to work on fastball command today," or "I'm just going to work on my changeup today," whatever it might be. I don't, I don't think results for relievers in spring training matter a whole lot, um, even if, if even if the results are great. Because a lot of times when relievers get in the game in spring training, they're facing Double A guys or you know whatever it may be. So I've I've always learned over the years that you can't get too worked up about uh, how relievers look in spring training. Mariano Rivera was a notoriously bad spring training pitcher because he would always just say, oh, hey, today I'm only going to throw this one pitch or I'm just going to work on, you know, trying to locate on the outside corner, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, so, no, I think, you know, they they really went for strike throwers in their bullpen in their bullpen in the offseason. And that's what Chris Martin does. That's what Blyer does. They were so tired of the walks and the nibbling that they had last year. I think with, with Jansen and, and Blyer and, and Martin, you're going to see a lot more efficiency coming out of the bullpen.
1: All right. And then, of course, the big one is Chris Sale, who got clobbered on a start on Monday. But he said it was a good thing that he got clobbered, like it was good that he experienced that he was hitting 95, 96. The velocity seems to be back closer to what it was in 18. Pete, even when he came back in 2021, you're in the 93 mile an hour range. So he looks like he, at least he has his velocity back, understanding that it was a rough outing the other day to me. And I know Corey's references multiple times. The biggest pitch is the change. If he, if he has that, he's a totally different pitcher. But how are you feeling about Sale entering the season? Do you think this is a guy that we can depend on as somebody at the top of the rotation?
0: Well, I mean, they have no choice, right? I mean, he, he's <laughs> you know, ideally their best starter. Uh, what's interesting about Sale is that and I was talking to him about this at the beginning of camp. He, he basically has gone. He went about three years, right, without pitching. And he was saying he has, he's had to do a lot of work building up his arm strength. He's had to play a lot of long toss. He's done a lot of things in the weight room just trying to get his arm strength back up because it, it kind of withered away because he, he was just unable to pitch. And when when you're a pitcher, you know, you spend eight, nine months of the year working on your arm strength. And he wasn't able to do that for a very long time. The fact that his velo is ticked up at the end of camp is a very good sign that what he's done is working. Uh, I think that was the takeaway I had from his last start, that his velocity is getting better. Uh, you're going to get hit around occasionally in spring training. I don't know that that's a big deal for a guy like Chris. You're not game planning against any of the guys you're facing. You don't even know the lineup you're facing half the time. So I think once we get into the regular season and we see him on an every five day rotation, uh, getting a chance to prepare, uh, I think you'll see, you know, we'll understand where he's at. Now, the other thing I think Red Sox fans are going to have to understand, no matter how well he pitches, and I don't care if he's, you know, the best guy in the American League for all of April, they are going to take every single chance they get to give him an extra day of rest. If there's a day off in the schedule, they're going to bump him back. If, you know, whatever it might be, and people, oh, you know, he needs to pitch against the Yankees on Friday night, whatever it might, you know, they are going to take every chance to give him that extra rest. That might cut him down to maybe 31 starts in the season instead of 33. But after what's gone on the last couple of years, if, if he makes 30 starts, I mean, they ought to throw a party because that would, you know, that's, they couldn't even imagine that for the last couple of years. So, they're going to be super careful with him. There's going to be days he looks great, and they're going to take him out after five innings or six innings. Uh, but I think the hope is that all of that pays off for them in September. And, you know, as I'm sure they hope to in the playoffs. So uh, Sale is going to be somebody, you know, if if he gets back to 85% peak Chris Sale, that's still a pretty damn good pitcher. And the Red Sox will certainly take that.
1: Yeah. And if we get 30 plus starts, I think we should have a duck boat parade. I mean, that would be amazing. Yeah, if Chris right. had- I mean, It would be great. I mean, it'd be unbelievable. You know, my only issue, Pete, with I did not have an issue with him not starting opening day, but here's my issue. This is just a pure selfish thing. I love like the Saturday afternoon, four o'clock starts at Fenway, like that they started doing over the past couple of years. I really wish he started that game, not the Sunday, the one o'clock against like the four o'clock game on Saturday. That would have been perfect. From my perspective, I'm glad he's starting opening weekend, but man, that Saturday game would have been perfect. Like, especially if you're coming off a win on Thursday and then it's like you get the day in between and sales pitching on Saturday, that would have really fired me up.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Cora said something about, you know, oh, we want him to enjoy spring training. And, you know, I mean, the uh, opening day and the ceremonies and all that stuff. Now, this is all about getting him an extra couple of days. That's all it is. They, yep. they want to take every chance to space him out. And, you know, Corey Kluber is a perfectly, you know, Good opening day guy. He's done it five times in the past. I'm sure he'll do fine. They are going to take every single chance. And Cora is going to come up with all kinds of, you know, oh, it's his kid's birthday or whatever. <laughs> you know, there's going to be all kinds of stuff. They are, they're going to, you know, the more often they can pitch him on five days rest. They're going to take it. Uh, and I think this it's starting right from the first time through the rotation. There's a reason he's pitching the second game. They don't they want to give him an extra day.
1: All right, that is Pete Abraham from the Globe. Pete cannot wait for the season. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk again during the year. And hey, enjoy opening day.
0: Yeah, it's going to be great. I always, Fenway Park's the best place for opening day. It's a great thing.
1: All right, great stuff there from both Pete Abraham and Chad Finn of the Globe. A lot of fun talking with Pete, getting ready for the season. Great stuff, of course, as always, from Chad as well. All right, make sure to get your voicemails in. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys on Sunday.